I'll be seated and open your Bibles to Psalm 36. And so if you continue to journey through these Psalms, we have found significant challenge and help as we have considered who God is and our need for Him and the provision He makes for us in Himself and through the cross. And so as we come to Psalm 36, there's no superscription here that tells us about when this was written. It's just simply a psalm that is attributed to David. And as we begin to read through these verses, and we see a great contrast in the beginning and then in the middle sections between the wickedness of man and the loving kindness of God. And for me, one of the great mysteries is my ability to comprehend what the love of God really means in my life. The unconditional, unwavering, eternal love that God has for me as his child. While it's true that man is unique because he has been created by God in his own image, and that man is really the crown jewel of God's creation, the heart of man due to our sinful condition is utterly Wicked. Now, as we go through this psalm, you're going to hear words like evil and wickedness and transgression and iniquity. And what we need to be able to do is to understand what these terms really mean. When we hear words like evil and wickedness specifically, we tend to want to pawn that title off on those that the world's population would generally agree are wicked people. We have people all throughout our history that most would say, yeah, he was a really a wicked guy, kings and rulers and others who have brought war and famine and hardship and distress. It's not difficult to read your paper, to turn on the evening news or to click on the internet and find a wealth of wickedness that exists out there in our world. But here's the challenge that you and I have. We can't set the reality of wickedness off on other people to the exclusion of the evil and the wickedness that may exist within our hearts. We polish ourselves up real good on Sunday morning and we speak the language throughout the week and we have a view of ourself that often doesn't embrace the reality of the evil and the sin that still exists within our lives. We shake our heads in disbelief at what is being done out there in the world and many times by whom it is being done, and we wonder if it can ever get any worse. And as we do that, we often fail to see our own sin, our own need for cleansing and repentance in a truly sanctified heart and life. While we aren't wicked people by the standard of most other people, I'm quite confident that there's enough sin in each of us that apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we would still be considered wicked because we still fall far short of the glory and the perfection of God. So the psalm speaks to man's inherent wickedness and as a great contrast to that wickedness, the amazing love of God. Let's look together in Psalm 36. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Here's what the Word of God says to us today. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. 
The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself up on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Verse 5, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. So we're going to look at this psalm in four sections and we'll spend a lot of time in the first two. We'll move through the last two a little more quickly. So the first thing that we see in this psalm is the human heart. We see the wickedness that exists within the heart of man. Now before we even get into verse 1 and break it down to make sense of what it says, it's important to understand some of what is not seen as a part of this psalm and of verse 1. It was said by commentator J.A. Alexander, who was a prolific commentator in the 19th century. He says that this verse is perhaps the most difficult verse to interpret in the entire book of Psalms. Wow, that says a lot, right? So there's a lot that's in here that we don't see. What we can't see in our translations, which, which is what exists in the original Hebrew text, of which I am not a student, is the term or the word for oracle. Some translations contain the word oracle in verse 1, others do not. But the Hebrew word for oracle is actually a technical term used repeatedly in the prophets to introduce a divine proclamation. Now, you don't see that in your text because it is not there. Now, it's almost always followed by the Hebrew name for God, Jehovah. I don't try to pronounce the, the Hebrew because it's too difficult. So what you would see in the prophetic literature is oracle and then the name Jehovah. Sometimes it would be at the beginning. Sometimes it would occur in the middle. Other times it would occur at the end. But what it means is that this oracle is the divine proclamation of God himself. You would see within the prophetic writings Thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh. So the psalm that we have here, and this appearance of the technical word for oracle, it stands independent of the psalm. It's really not mixed into verse 1, but it's important to understand why it's there and how best to interpret that. It does not have the name of God, Jehovah, following the word oracle, so it leads some to believe that David is speaking about an insight that God has given to him, although God did not say to David, thus saith the Lord. David is considered a prophet in a very, very loose sense. He did not fill the classic role of a prophet in the life of Israel, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and others who were prolific during the days of Israel. So while this psalm doesn't fit the typical prophetic utterance, 
the usage of the word oracle at the heading of the psalm indicates that David considered what he was about to write as divine insight given to him by God, full of inspiration, full of authority, but not necessarily in the classic sense of a prophetic utterance. So as we look at what David is about to say, as we evaluate the human heart, What we need to recognize, based upon the way this is fleshed out, is this. Sin speaks to the sinner. This oracle is actually sin speaking. Verse 1a, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. Rather than God speaking through a prophet, a divine utterance, what we have here is sin speaking to the heart of the ungodly, and to mankind in general. If sin had an audible voice, what do you suppose sin would say? It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. No one can see. You're not really hurting anybody. Now what we would do in our culture today is we would attribute the voice of sin to whom? To Satan himself, our great enemy, the one who prompts us to sin, the one who brings temptation into our life, the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and said, God's not going to do that. God didn't say that. God's trying to deprive you. So this is sin speaking, speaking to the sinful heart of man. And this is the first thing that sin says, don't fear God. Verse 1b, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The ungodly, the wicked man who has no relationship with God, he does not fear God. Now, the word fear in this verse is very different from the word fear that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. The fear of God is a devoted reverence to the Lord. All believers are to possess a devoted reverence to God. This is why it says in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord, the devoted reverence of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. And to contrast that, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Many times in the Proverbs, fool is a common term for the lost, those outside of a relationship with God. So the word doesn't mean devoted reverence here. The word means dread. There is no dread of God in the heart of the ungodly. What it means is there is no fear of God's wrath. There is no fear of God's judgment. It's as if God doesn't even exist. Some time ago, I was sharing my faith with an individual, and I'd asked him if he'd given consideration to his his eternal destination. He's like, nope. I said, no, not at all. Nope. You don't worry about standing before God and giving an account of your life to God? Nope. You believe in God, don't you? Yeah. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin? Yeah. And you don't fear God? Nope. I'd never heard that before in my life. But it happens. It exists. There are people all in our world, and yea, even in the church, who have no fear of God. Now, you could say, well, I can understand why the Hitlers of the world wouldn't have any fear of God. But you and I, as we casually embrace sin in our life, do we not have the same lack of fear for God's discipline and judgment and consequence in our life? Or do we live and think as if God has just magically erased 
his ma- our sin with his magic wand and to say, no big deal, you're covered under the blood. Do whatever you want to do. Is that what we believe? You see, there ought to be a fear of God, a devoted reverence, and it's not a bad thing to have a true dread of the consequence that can come into our life as we choose to live a life of rebellion and disobedience to God's commands. Well, because of the way that sin deceives us, people are led to believe that there is no punishment for sin. I can do whatever I want, I can live however I want, and I have zero concern about a divine being doing anything about it. You know, that was one of the reasons why throughout the revelation of God's Word there was such instant and drastic consequence to sin. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to Peter about the price of the land that they sold. And what happened? They were gone in an instant. We look at that and say, well, that doesn't happen anymore. So God must have changed the plan. I don't have to worry about God's consequences in my life. Well, we're going to sow what we reap. Isn't that right? That's right. So the first thing that sin says to the heart of the ungodly, to the heart of man, is don't fear God. The second thing sin says is you're great. Man, you're, you're really it. You've got it all together. Look at you. You are a sight to behold. Verse 2, For it flatters him, it being sin, it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Now, it here can be sin speaking or it can be the ungodly heart speaking to the individual itself. Either way, you have the same outcome. You're great. Man, you are the envy of the town. If everybody was like you, what a better world this would be. You know, in our culture today, in in America most especially, there is an intentional and a concerted effort to elevate man so high that the thought of a God or the idea of a God or the need for a God has basically been eliminated. And there are a whole number of churches out there selling the same set of lies to people who think they know Jesus as their Savior. And you deserve this. And God's going to give you that. And you're going to be blessed. And man, you're great the way you are. Well, this is sin speaking to the heart of man, deceiving and leading us astray. Sin will speak to our pride and cultivate it in such a way that we will elevate ourselves and create a false sense of reality. We don't see ourselves as God sees us, but as we see us. Now, make no mistake about it. When you come to Christ and you are saved, your sin is covered. You have been declared to be justified and righteous in God's eyes positionally for your end destination. But in the meantime, you and I are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to be conformed to the image of God. We are not perfect. We are on a long road that doesn't end until death comes or the Lord comes back to take us home. And we have a constant and a continual need to be changed from what we used to be, a sinful, wicked man, into what God has called us to be, holy and righteous, just as He is. But because we flatter ourselves, or because sin flatters us, we are unable to see our own sin, and we are unable to even hate it, because we're unaware that it even exists. That's what it means 
about discovering your iniquity and despising it. When sin flatters us, there is no sin. We're not even aware of it. When we're great, we don't have a need to confess and repent. We're good just the way we are. We can create such a, such a false view as a result of our own self-righteousness that we are incapable of seeing our own sin. And when someone has the audacity to point out our sin to us, we say, how dare you? We get our feathers ruffled. Our sense of self is shaken. And we instantly go back to who we believe ourselves to be apart from who we may actually be. This is one of the reasons it's important to have relationships in our lives that can help us to grow in our walk with God so that we don't possess a false view of self and be ignorant of the sin that is so obvious and we can then repent and confess and cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So sin speaks and says, don't fear God and you're great the way you are. And there's some results in this that we see in these verses. Number one, the result, it is going to be sinful speech. Verse 3a, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. Now remember, when we're talking about wickedness, we're not talking about spewing hatred and vulgarities. We're talking about sin. We're talking about anything that is not pleasing to God. Now we've talked about speech over the last couple of weeks. Believers are to have speech that reflects the love And the grace of God, the praise of God, is to continually flow from our mouths. And when it isn't, it's an indicator that we are acting like our old self as opposed to the regenerate self that has been covered by the grace of God. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. It simply means that we are speaking inconsistently with who we profess to be. Now, who is perfect in their speech? Not me. I have this bad habit of muttering under my breath. And sometimes the mutter gets a little bit louder. And it's not an accidental hearing. It's like I forgot there's other people around. But what we've got to remember is this. What comes out of our mouth comes from our hearts. And when we have sinful speech, it's an indication of the continued need for regeneration to take place through sanctification in our hearts so that we speak the words of praise that God is worthy of hearing and other words that are beneficial for other people around us. Don't get lulled into a false sense of relief when you see the word wickedness here because it isn't reserved for just the people that we would all agree are really, really bad. It's anything that isn't pleasing to God or consistent with His plans and purposes for us. Words that are hurtful and hateful and sinful, words that are dishonest or filled with half-truths would all be included in this sinful speech that David says, wickedness. Number two, not only sinful speech, but sinful thinking. Verse 3b, he has ceased to be wise and to do good. The result of listening to sin and following it is futility in our thinking. That word futility means set on empty things or meaningless things. I'm supplying that word. It's not in the original verse here. But if we cease to be wise, it means that we are being foolish in our thinking. The fool's heart is set on the temporary, the here and now, upon self-gratification about me, myself and I, and how you can help me, or how I can use you to get what I want. That's all part of the futility of our thinking. 
So sin deceives us and it blinds us. It corrupts us and the result is a general lack of wisdom in how we are to live our lives. You know, we hear this in our culture all the time and it just makes my skin crawl when I hear someone giving counsel and they say, hey, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Your heart's not going to lead you astray, right? There's a good Greek word for that. You remember that good Greek word? It's baloney. It's a good Hebrew word too. I don't know what that Hebrew word is. But it isn't true. We can't follow our heart. Our heart is deceitful and wicked and desperately sick, right? So when we lack wisdom in how we are to live our lives, we're going to rebel against what God wants us to do. We're going to rebel against His plans and purposes so that we can live a life that is totally about me. Do you know anybody like that? Do you see a lot of wisdom in their life, in the the decisions they make, the things that they have set ahead of them as their chief end? Number three, we see sinful plans. Verse 4a, he plans wickedness upon his bed. Again, wickedness here isn't restricted to violence or illegal schemes. Wickedness is anything that is displeasing to God, anything that would be considered sinful. The picture here is very, very bad. The godly contemplate their sinful plans while in their bed, in their waking and in their lying down. They are consumed with living a life that brings to them what they believe will bring happiness and satisfaction, which is based upon a lack of wisdom as we would understand it from God's Word. You know, it's, um, it's a curious thing to me when a professing Christian gets caught up in the act of adultery and the impending divorce. It's very, very, very rare that that happens just like that. It happens when we begin to dwell on it. We begin to think about how this is going to take place and what could I do and what should I do and how can I get away with that and how can I hide that. And you know, So you begin to plan this stuff, right? We plan our sin. And this is the idea here, is that the wicked, the sinful, who are opposed to God's plans and God's purposes, will end their lying down and end their waking and walking. They will contemplate how to sin. This leads us to number four, sinful actions. Verse 4b, He sets Himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. You know, when you take this individual act of adultery within the life of a Christian, it's not uncommon for that individual to justify or to rationalize why they did what they did. I don't know, but my Bible hasn't been updated to delete the sin of adultery from it. Has yours? So you can use that same analogy for many, many, many different parts of our everyday life. How we relate to one another. What we say to one another. The things we do to one another. How we treat one another. So this ungodly man, this man who has set his life on disobeying God and living a life of self, does not despise evil. The result of this sin, dominated life, is the inevitability of a path or a walk or a life 
that is dominated by self and sin and is in absolute, complete opposition to the plans and purposes of God. This kind of person doesn't hate sin, doesn't despise sin, probably isn't even aware that it is sin, but instead finds delight in doing those things which God has said, no, these are not good. These are not in accordance with what I want for you. So the corrupt heart has produced a defiled conscience, a confused mind, and a perverted will. And this is a picture of who we used to be apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is who we are continually to fight against being as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling through the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you all once walked when you were living in them. You know, it's, it's really sad that we can be a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years and we can forget the depth of the sin that we were immersed in. Think about who you used to be. Think about what God has saved you from. And if you grew up in a Christian home and you never rebelled and wavered, praise God for the testimony that you have. But for the rest of us, there ought to be some acknowledgement that there is this depth of sin, this animal that is still within me, that God calls me to put to death every day, to crucify it to the cross, so I don't be who I used to be. I instead be who God has created me to be through the work of Christ. So, we see this human heart, and in great contrast to this heart, we see this. We see the character of God. What an amazing contrast that we're going to find in these verses. These verses will give us a very brief overview of only four elements of God's character. And as we consider them and think upon these things, they should draw us to Him with humble and thankful hearts. The first thing that we see is this. Number one, God is loving. Verse 5a, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. The un failing love of God. When you hear the word, the unfailing love of God, what comes to your mind? Do you think about the perfection of His love? Do you think about the consistency of His love? Do you think about the completeness of His love? Do you think about the sacrifice of His love? Do you think about the cross of Christ and God's picture of love to the wicked human heart? You see, what you and I need to remember is that we love Him because He first loved us. The loving kindness of God extends into the heavens, meaning it has no limits. There is no end to the love of God. You know, even with the greatest telescopes that exist within our world today, you can look out into space to infinity. You can't see the end of it, and that's an idea of the kind of love that God has. It has no end. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, as a part of the prayer, says this, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let me ask you this question. If you were concentrating on the love of God, its endlessness, its limitlessness, its completeness, how inclined are we to be to be thinking about our sin, to be contemplating ways that we can sin? You see, it's what we focus on. It's what we fixate on that determines the course of our life. When we begin to consider the vast love of God, we should be drawn to Him in such a way that when He makes our sin aware to us, we are just broken before Him. Well, just like His love, number two, God is faithful. This is a complementary element to His love. Verse 5b, your faithfulness reaches to the sky. What comes to your mind when you think about the faithfulness of God? Do you think about how God never fails you? Do you think about how God always cleanses and forgives you? Do you think about how God always provides for you? Do you think about how God always blesses you? When you consider that we each possess a truly sinful heart and that we continue to struggle to live a completely consecrated life, His love and His faithfulness are endless to us. His faithfulness reaches to the skies, meaning that just like His love, it has no end. What difference does it make that God possesses for us a limitless love and extends to us a limitless faithfulness in spite of the wickedness that still exists within our hearts? The sin that is still so easily entangling us. What does that say about the character of God? Number three, God is righteous. Verse 6a, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. So the righteousness of God speaks of His perfection in all of His actions. It speaks of His holiness in heart. It speaks of His complete purity in every conceivable way. It means there is no wrong in Him. There is no improper motivation. There is no vindictiveness. There is no hint of impurity in any way. God always acts in accordance with His righteousness. Always, always, always. When it begins to rain in our lives, when we begin to experience all kinds of difficulty that we don't prefer to be true of us, God is still righteous. Always, God is righteous. Just as His love and His faithfulness have no limits, His righteousness is like the great mountains. They are immovable. Isn't it good to know? That this immovable God who has love and faithfulness without end stands with us because of who He is. Because of the covenant He has made with us through Christ. Number four, not only is God righteous, but God is just. This is a complementary element to His righteousness. Just as love and faithfulness, righteousness and justness go together. Verse 6b, Your judgments are like a great deep, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. God's justness, His judgments are established in His righteousness and are consistent with His love 
and his faithfulness. Have you ever heard it said that something is a mile wide and an inch deep? You know what that means, right? There's, just, there's no substance, there's no content. It's all just kind of frilly. Well, see, that's not the way it is with God. God, his, his justness is like the deep. You know, there are depths in the ocean that are taller than any mountain that exists on planet Earth. And I don't know that David knew the depth of the depths, but he knew that they were pretty deep. And this is what he's saying, is that as a part of God's covenant, he provides for man and beast, and his ways, his judgments, his justness are like the deep. They are the result of his omniscience carried out in his omnipotence. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways can seem mysterious to us like the great deep. And we read this in Romans chapter 11 as Paul makes application of this psalm. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And all the church should say, Amen. God's ways are mysterious, but they are always just. We can rest in the sovereignty of God knowing the endless love, the endless faithfulness, the immovable righteousness of God as He acts towards us. So, flowing from the character of God, we come to our third section here. We're going to see the blessings of God, the blessings that are the result of God's character as it is extended to the community of faith. Number one, He provides His presence. Verse 7, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That word precious there is important for us to emphasize. What does precious mean? Precious means of great value, right? We have material things in our life that we would say these are invaluable. There may be a ton of sentimental attachment to something. It may only be worth $100, but to you, it's priceless because of the sentimentality that we attach to these things. Well, that word precious here gives us the idea of the way that we are to approach the character of God as it's been expressed to us, not only in His Word, but also in our experience. How precious is God's love toward us. It should be beyond our comprehension. And most times it's beyond our expression. Psalm 40, verse 5, says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Isn't that true? The blessings that you and I have, I believe the greatest blessing that you and I have is this privilege of being able to take refuge in God. He allows us to enjoy the promise of His presence. 
When you take refuge in something, you're seeking safety. You're seeking seeking something to shelter you and to hide you and to protect you. And God doesn't say, go over there. God doesn't say, go do that. God says, come to me and I will be your refuge. I am your refuge and ever-present help in time of need. This thought is expressed by the words refuge and the shadow of God's wings. Now, God doesn't have literal wings, right? Some believe that this is a reference back to the Holy of Holies and to the seraphim that were fashioned on the mercy seat. And that Holy of Holies, that mercy seat, was thought to be the very presence of God. And so there's this invitation to come to the mercy seat, to sit under the protection of the seraphim, which represents my very presence in the nation of Israel and my very presence in your life. God is our refuge, and He invites us to come to Him to find what only He can provide. What an incredible blessing God has given to us in Himself. Number two, He provides an abundance. We read in verse 8, They, the redeemed, they drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. To drink their fill means His provision completely satisfies, and we are not in want of anything. You know, we're coming up to Thanksgiving here in a few weeks, believe it or not. And some of you are going to eat your fill at the table, and you're going to push away, and you're going to say, Ugh. Isn't that right? Well, the idea here is that God invites us to come to Him where He will provide an abundance. His supply is abundant because it comes from His house. This has an eschatological element to it when we will banquet with God at His table, and He will be our host. It's reminiscent of Psalm 23, where God provides an abundant table to feast at in the presence of our enemies. There is a day that is coming when we will feast at God's table, and He will be our host, and we will enjoy of the abundance of His house. To drink from the river of His delights means what He gives to us provides us with real life. Remember we studied the book of John and the fountain of living water or the spring of living water? There's a parallel here in drinking the river of His delights. A spiritual reality that speaks of our salvation and of His giving to us an abundance of life both in the now and for all of eternity. The word river of delights has the word Eden in it, which some think is a reference to the This is a hard word to say. The paradisical existence that took place in the Garden of Eden. You know, we talk about the Garden of Eden being a place of paradise. And so some think that this is an allusion to this life of paradise back the way it was before sin entered into the world. But the bottom line is this. He provides abundantly. You may not be a rich person, and that's okay. God gives you all of Himself You may have aches and pains and you may have things going on in your body that aren't very fun to deal with, but it's okay because God provides an abundance of Himself to the point that even though we face this hardship, even though we may be in pain, God provides us with an abundance of Himself. Number three, He provides life and light. Verse nine, For with you is the fountain of life in your light, 
we see light. Now that should ring a bell back to the study in the Gospel of John. God is the source of life. In His first act of creation, what did God do? God created light, right? Light dispels the darkness. And in the spiritual context, light illuminates the heart of man, enabling him to see the truth of who God is, to see the depth and the reality of our own sin, and to say, uh-oh, i got a problem. It is God that illuminates the darkness of our heart, and it is God's light that dispels the darkness from our heart so that we can be cleansed, spotless and pure, just as the Savior is. These expressions clearly represent the person and the work of Christ. And we could read a half a dozen verses. I just want to read these few here. In uh, John 1, 4 and 5, In Him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. He is the life. He is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it or understand it. And most literally it means did not embrace it. So when God illuminates our hearts, it washes away the ignorance that, that is depicted in the life of the ungodly in verses 1 through 4. And like the rivers of delight, there is an eschatological element in this light of God as referenced here by David. Revelation 21, 23, and 24. This is in the future. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Think about that. No sun, no moon, no need of any of that. Why? Because the Lamb who is the light will completely illuminate the new heavens and the new earth. God has richly blessed us with life, and with light. Now this brings us to our last section. This is going to go very quickly. Don't lose heart. <laughs> Quick, I promise. Section number four, the believer's prayer. Two things we see in this. The first one is this. David's prayer is to prolong your love to me. This isn't a question about God's consistent loving kindness. It's simply an expression of a desire for it to continue on and on and on that it would have no end. Verse 10, O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. David's praying that I, I never want to see the endlessness of your loving kindness expressed to me, your righteousness to me. I desire that each and every day. He doesn't pray that just for himself. He prays that to, quote, those who know you and to, quote, the upright in heart. Now, who are they? It's the community of believers. 2,000 years later, David's praying this prayer that you and I can claim for ourselves today that we would continue to experience the loving kindness of God each and every day. Now, His loving kindness is endless, right? His faithfulness is endless, right? Which means we can experience it. We need to be in a proper spiritual posture in order to experience, and that is the devoted reverence of the Lord. It is a life that is committed to and living for the Lord. While God never changes, our, our ability to experience His goodness can be affected by our obedience to Him. Therefore, David would pray, secondly, 
for God to protect him. Verse 11, Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. So the pride within our hearts can lead us astray, right? And the influence of the unbelieving world can lead us astray. That's why we need to be very, very careful who our closest friends are. That's why we need to be very careful about who we're getting advice from and where we're turning to when we've got a problem or a need. We'll turn to the world's ways or we'll turn to God's ways. We'll turn to the worldly people or we'll turn to God's people. Make no mistake about it, pride and worldly influence are a powerful force that need to be reckoned with. We need to be discerning about what we let in because what we let in is going to be fleshed out through the lives that we live. David recognized his own frailty and he expressed this reality in a prayer of protection from the ungodly and from their eventual end that we see in verse 12. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Sin and God's rule cannot coexist together. Let me repeat that. Sin and God's rule cannot exist together. David wants no part of this kind of life. He wants no part of the punishment that's going to come to those who have said, I have no fear of God. This is expressed in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the path of the wicked will perish. You can take that to the bank. Now, as we conclude this, here's what I want for us to remember. You and I possess the potential to live a kind of life that is totally inconsistent with who God has saved us to be. Would you acknowledge that? But for the grace of God, there go I. We possess an unfinished heart that needs to be sanctified until our life on this earth is over. We need to recognize that that's true for us. As a contrast against the depth of sin that still is within you and I, is this limitless love, this endless faithfulness of God. The reality that He is righteous and just, and He has chosen to deal with you and I through mercy and grace and not give to us what we deserve. The proper response to that reality is a life that is humble and thankful before the Lord. Not one that demands, not one that is entitled, not one that says, not you, God, but me, but a life that is truly laid low before Him in devoted reverence to say, you are God and I thank you for what you have done to me. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge, hopefully quite readily, that we are an incomplete work. And God, I I pray that we would not lose heart. I pray that we would not allow the enemy to come in and create such a guilt trip, such a sense of shame, that we would come to the conclusion that we're far beyond your reach. God, help us to hear the accusatory nature of our enemy. Father, would you replace the voice of sin that speaks to us with the reality and the truth of who you are?
Would you help us to recognize the need to be in your word, to be fed truth, so we can counteract what sin speaks to us, what our enemy tempts us to do. God, would you find in each of us a deeper desire to know you, to love you, to live for you. Would you become our absolute everything, the most precious thing in our world. God, we pray that you would do this through the work of your spirit as we cooperate with your plans and purposes for our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.